things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the special edition of No Mercy with Stephen A. Smith on Election Day. Today's November 8th, date of the midterm elections taking place throughout the United States of America. Key races in New York for the gubernatorial seat, a Senate seat in the state of Pennsylvania. Obviously, there's stuff to monitor in North Carolina, Arizona, the state of Washington. The list goes on and on where we don't know what will happen, whether power is going to shift. Will Nancy Pelosi remain Speaker of the House or will Kevin McCarthy become the new Speaker of the House? Um, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer in the Senate, Republican and Democrat respectively, of course. Obviously, the race for the White House, uh, that takes place. End of 23, into the year 2024, because uh, that election will take place in 2024. But you know something? I'm looking forward to having my guest on with me today. It's Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. Uh, Because this brother doesn't have limitations when it comes to discussing any matter that involves intellectuality. That involves common sense. That involves something from an historical perspective, dare I say you. And let's face reality, ladies and gentlemen, it's necessary to have somebody like that. I didn't want a politician on the day. Because what are you, you going to get? You're going to get spin. It's going to be the left or the right. And my personal relationship with Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, who I've known for pretty much 20 years, doesn't involve politics. He can speak on it as most experts can. Actually, he can speak about it better than most experts. And I know that you'll see him and you've seen him debate Republicans and members of the GOP and beyond time and time again. And you'll think he's a leftist. That's not the conversations he and I have. Conversations he and I have are community-based, people-based. What's in your soul? What's right or wrong? He might provide an historical perspective to shine a light upon the desolate and the disenfranchised and what their thinking may be and what their trials and tribulations may specifically endure and how indeed we may need to overcome it and what things we may need to do to overcome those things. But I don't think I'm talking to a leftist when I'm talking to him. I don't think I'm talking to a progressive when I'm talking to him. I damn sure know I ain't talking to a Republican when I'm talking to him. Or a mega Republican, I can tell you that much. I'm just talking to somebody whose knowledge I trust with every fiber of my being. This is a man who is in a... who is a renowned academic, taught at Chicago Theological Seminary, Brown University, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Columbia University, DePaul, of course, the University of Pennsylvania. From 2007 to 2020, he was a professor of sociology at Georgetown University. Currently serves as a professor in the College of Arts and Science in the Divinity School at Vanderbilt, University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's an ordained minister. He's a radio host. Described as, quote, a Princeton PhD and a child of the streets, 
who takes pains never to separate the two. Oh, by the way, did I forget to tell you he's the author of more than 20 books dealing with subjects such as Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Marvin Gaye, Barack Obama, the hip-hop artist Nas, and his debut album, Illmatic, Bill Cosby, Tupac Shakur, of course, Hurricane Katrina, winner of numerous NAACP Image Award for his books. Just some of the works along the way, Why I Love Black Women. Winner, is Bill Cosby right? Or has the black middle class lost its mind? He's won an award for that in NAACP. Come hella high water, Hurricane Katrina and the color of disaster. Actually, won an NAACP image award for outstanding literary work within that category. Plus, he won the American Book Award as well. And just in 2018, Southern Book Prize, nonfiction, tears we cannot stop. A sermon to white America. This is who I'm about to talk to. About Clarence Thomas. About the Supreme Court. The 6-3 majority the conservative sides has. About the overturning of Roe v. Wade. About economics and inflation and an impending recession. About which way to vote may go and why. What will happen if either side wins or loses? Hell, I'm going to even take a moment to talk to him about Kanye West and Kyrie Irving. It doesn't stop. Because there should never step, be a stop sign when it comes to no mercy. Knowing mercy matters. You got to identify what the problem is and whether mercy is required. And how can we do that if we never discuss the real issues in a poignant and pertinent way? I can't think of anybody better to talk about these subjects on the day of the midterm elections than my brother, the one and only Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. He's up next with Stephen A. on No Mercy. Don't touch that dial. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Oh, it is an honor and a privilege to have my guest on with me today. He is an author of more than 20 books, a New York Times best-selling author, I might add, by the way. Uh, he is a noted historian. He is a professor extraordinaire. I mean, it's been at Georgetown. It's been at the University of North Carolina. It's at Vanderbilt University uh, as we speak. Uh, he's a political pundit. Uh, I mean, he's Mr. Everything. That's what I call him. He's also my brother, longtime friend, the one and only Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. What's going on, big time? How are you, sir? Stephen A. the GOAT. I'm glad to be here with you, my man. You know what I'm saying? I don't get a chance to hang out with animals called goats often, but I'm hanging with one tonight. Well, the well, feel is mutual. The feel is mutual. I don't, <laughs> I don't consider myself that way. I look at you as being that person. You and I go back a, a long ways. First oh, order man. business. How are you doing? How has life been? It's been a while since I've spoken to you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good, man. I'm down in uh, Nashville hanging out there. And, uh, you know, because of the time mismatch, I haven't been able to get you into my class yet because right. we meet early in the morning. But I just had Megan the Stallion there. Uh, okay. uh, this is all virtually. John Legend, Tyler Perry. Mm-hmm. So we waiting on the GOAT, Stephen A. Smith, to come oh, on. Oh, I can come virtually. Oh, I can come virtually. I mean, okay. I, I, I don't know if I could get a break to fly down to Nashville. No, but, no, no. But, They're all doing I'm, virtual. And you I, know I can what? do that. I don't want to exploit your situation right now, but this is the perfect time. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. Listen, man, I I had to talk to you because there's so much going on in the world today. And you and I talk so much, so often we've talked throughout the years and we always talk about life, not just sports. And there's some serious stuff going on right now. I mean, I'm reading in the wall street journal, just, just was it just uh, a Monday, the Supreme court, the high court heard students, from fair admissions argue that Harvard's and the University of North Carolina's use 
of race preferences in admissions is unconstitutional, essentially. So they're trying to basically overturn affirmative action. We understand what's going on there. What are your thoughts about that case? Enlighten our audience as as, as to how successful you expect their arguments to be. Well, quite frankly, I think they're going to be quite successful. We've had a paradigm shift and a huge ideological drift toward the right wing, as we know on our court. It's not balanced with moderates and liberals and conservatives. It's 6-3 right wing conservatives. And um, it spells, I think, doom and danger for so many of the things we hold precious and dear. We saw what happened with Roe versus Wade. And look, people have complicated ideas about abortion and women's right to choose and so on. But the court has been so radical in its decision making that it really, you know, argues against, militates against a balanced perspective when it comes to affirmative action. Again, we know that that court is going to overrule it. We heard Katanji Brown speak up eloquently for it, but we heard Clarence Thomas say, I've heard these arguments before. They sound like segregation. The irony is Clarence Thomas wouldn't be on the court without the existence of affirmative action And yet uh, it seems he is poised to vote against it. And we know that affirmative action doesn't mean that black people or brown people or people of color are inferior. Without affirmative action, Michael Jordan would have never gotten into the NBA unless the NBA said we're going to open up our doors and desegregate and allow people that we had historically denied opportunities to come in. So it doesn't mean that inferior people are coming in. It means historically denied uh, minoritized people are able to get back in and have a chance at a fair opportunity, at a fair education, at a fair job. But the mood of the nation is so dramatically different right now than it was even with Baki in the in the late 70s when the Supreme Court weighed in and said, uh, we're going to change some of the affirmative action, but we're going to keep it basically in place. Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, the, the Supreme Court justice, justice said, yes. yeah, you're right. She said, look, it's, it's, you know, there's some problematic areas, but let's hold on to it. This court, no such thing. I think, you know, the court will rule against it. And we're going to have to get used to the fact that in education and in employment, affirmative action is a thing of the past, at least for now. Explain to folks who may differ from you. Right. In terms of your belief as it pertains to affirmative sure. action. Explain right. to folks who may understand it, but still believe. There may have been a time for affirmative action, but now, after all of this time, it is time for things to get back with what we would term equity, equality, et cetera, et cetera. What do you say to people who would say, the time is up for it? Yeah. You know, I I talk to people and I debate conservatives and those who are willing to have, you know, honest dialogue, not the people who are dismissing the possibility, but I you know, I've debated over the years this issue. And I say, look, let's let's do it fairly then. As long as we had enslavement, let's have let's have affirmative action. Now, I know you're not trying to go that far, so are you? No, of course not. So we say, look, it, it ain't been that long. When you think about the fact that under Richard Nixon, especially, affirmative action uh, takes root. Uh, LBJ was the first president who put it into effect. And all affirmative action says is people who have been historically locked out now get a chance. And I think most reasonable citizens would go, okay, that's cool. I just don't want them to get a leg up over me. But as Lyndon Baines Johnson said, if you put a person in a race who's been denied an opportunity to race all this time, it's no such thing as being fair by saying, oh, okay, now everybody can race fairly. You've had more practices. You've got good gym shoes or track shoes. You've had coaches who can encourage you to go along. So affirmative action suggests that there is an opportunity for African-American, Latino, and others, including white women, by the way, to be able to, to, to showcase their wares and to be able to compete in a society that historically gave affirmative action to white men. There's a, a, there's a professor at Columbia University, Ira Katz Nelson, a white historian. He wrote a book called When Affirmative Action Was White. Now, that might blow a lot of people's mind. And his point was, look at what happened with the GI Bill. What happened when you got home? Mostly white men. You got points on a test to go to school. Cool. You got ability to get extra money to buy a house. Fine. And you got points on a job score in order to give you a leg up in the economy for employment. That's affirmative action. That's all we're asking for a Marshall plan, for a GI bill 
for those who are beleaguered. Now, I can understand people say, well, it's been so long. How long has it been? Since the 60s? And we had 150, 250 years of denied opportunity. It takes a little bit more than 60 to 65 years for people to catch up in a race that they've been left far behind. And to all of a sudden think abracadabra, we're going to wave a wand and it's all good and it's all equal is really unrealistic. You know, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, as eloquent as, as that soliloquy was and as accurate as it may be, are you ready for me to challenge you like I normally do by saying always, always. I don't, even, I, I don't, I don't even think you made the best argument. Are you ready for this one? <laughs> tell me. The tell biggest me. beneficiary of, of, of affirmative action has been white women. I, I threw that in there subtly when I said and white women, but you're absolutely right. And when you put not only white women, but when you put in other able people, white people in general are the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action. And this is why it's amazing when you hear people go, oh, those black people or those Latino people. No. When you look at jobs and you look at employment and you look at access to opportunities historically denied, you're absolutely right. White women overwhelmingly have been the major beneficiaries of a policy that gets racialized when really it has some strong gender components. So what argument is the students for fed missions? actually trying to make here if those facts are well known are they ignoring the facts are they not aware of the facts are they oblivious to it or they do they j just don't care what is the argument these folks are making if those facts that you just spewed is something that's widely known well what they're trying to say is asian brothers and sisters and white folk are the ones who are disadvantaged substantially now here's the thing out in california when they put a quota on admissions for Asian people, because the Asian, you know, like white folk were, were whipping black people's behind and brown people's behind because they had historical support and they had historical access to education. Of course, they're going to do better, test better and everything. But when they start competing with the Asian folk, they were getting their butts beat. And so they were complaining that there were too many Asian folk getting in. So the white folk didn't mind that the Asian folk had uh, this kind of curtailment of their access. They didn't mind quotas being put on Asian people. So now they want to join together with Asian brothers and sisters and say, hey, white people, white men in particular, but white people in general, and Asian people are being unfairly hampered in terms of their access. Again, the few spots and spaces that are reserved for black people and brown people are not in any way or by any measure uh, denying opportunity to white people. It's a bunch of, you know, young people who don't know their history necessarily. And there's a great deal of resentment. There, there's the presumption. I didn't get in. I didn't get in because of you. You're a black person and you got in. The very small percentage of African-American or black and Latino, Latinx people who are able to get in, but you can throw in white women, of course, and it ex expands the numbers. Um, the point is that it is it still pales in comparison to the overwhelming majority of white brothers and sisters who get in. And what we already know, there will be a precipitous decline in the access of black and brown people to elite institutions of higher education. Now, we're not talking about the ordinary schools that people get at, gain access to, but we know we're talking about the top 25, the top 30, the most elite institutions. Harvard, Yale, all Duke, that. Private, schools, private institutions and public, and public institutions like UNC. Absolutely. And the fact is, a Stephen A. Smith, who's a genius, who's going to shine no matter what, the fact that you went to Winston-Salem, the fact that you went to an HBCU has not been prohibitive to you because your genius shine for, shone forth. But for the most other people, going to those top tier schools makes a difference. Hey, my kid went to Harvard. My kid went to Yale. My kid went to Princeton. My kid went to Chapel Hill. My kid went to Vanderbilt. They get a leg up just by association. And so there's a, an intense fight over the most elite institution. There's a fight over the Boston Celtics. There ain't no fight over the Charlotte Hornets. Mm -hmm. You and I talk, and when we've talked on several occasions, some of the times, obviously, you're very outspoken, very adamant, very, very vehement, and obviously highly intellectual with everything that you say. There are times that you've looked at me, Dr. Dyson, and you was like, why aren't you angrier? Why is <laughs> I, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? And I, I remember one time I said to you, because I'm not surprised. 
I said, I remember in the 80s, you and I had this conversation maybe about three years ago or so. And I said, you know what? Listen, look at the world and look at what's transpiring. You see the fomenting of just, I don't want to use the word hostility, even though I think it's more applicable now than it was back in the day, even a few years ago. But I'm just looking at things that are just stirring and just, I'm just, just building. And I say to myself, okay, in the 80s, the white population was 85%, something like that. And Black mm. population was about 13, 14%. The Hispanic right. Latino population was less than that. Now, the Latinos make up more than 70% of the population. The U.S. Census yeah. Bureau report points to the possibility or the likelihood of the, of the population in this country being over 30% by the year 2030. The Black right. population is going to somehow stay around 14 or 15%, according to the projections. The white populace has diminished to 60 And it's sliding. So to me, although you and I would look at it and say, there's some BS. We see what's going on here. It ain't time for affirmative action policies to be eradicated and to be extinct. I also understand where they're coming from. Like, they're fearful that the world they once knew is over. It's that simple to me. How simple is it to you? No, you're absolutely right. And other people... You know, scholars have made that the same kind of argument that there's a fear of genetic displacement, the diminishing of the white brand, for lack of a better word, and that white people are disappearing. That ain't disappearing. You're just diminishing when you've been so dominant. But then you come down where you're no longer the overwhelming majority. But as you point out, uh, by 2025, 2030, 2040, 2050, then white people are no longer the dominant population. Then we're closer to a South Africa. Neither were white South Africans. White South Africans were never the majority population. They had the majority dough. They had the majority political power. They had the majority institutions of education and in the culture. So even if you're not a majority in terms of population, you're still overwhelmingly over-indexed in terms of the institutions and the banks and the corporations and the money that runs America. So with that being said, one would could easily argue is their angst, their nervousness, or some of the issues that they're tackling, isn't it justifiable based on that reality you just articulated? Well, it's understandable. Uh, It's understandable that people who feel that their backs are against the wall, we used to own everything, now we own less of everything. We still own the majority Understandable is different than justifiable. I appreciate the correction. No, 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 that's all right. My son says, I'm number two. You're the number one word, Spiff. So I'll, I'll take any victory I can get. Please. I'll take any victory no, I can get. He doesn't know. He I doesn't get. know. I'll I'm a victory. distant number two. I'm a distant no. number two compared to you. <laughs> so my son says, you know, I love you. You know Stephen A is number one. So I'll take number two, but I'm going to tell him, hey, I got one in. I got one in, brother. Okay. So, but, the, but the point is that you're absolutely right, though. There's an understandable. Look, look. Even when you look at the numbers, um, white death among certain populations is rising. So it ain't just all made up. There's real concern, but here's the problem. Uh, It leads many white brothers and sisters to rail against who could really be their allies. That's us. Can you imagine if poor white and working class white folk got together with poor and working class Latinos and black people? Man, what a coalition that would be. Because Mm -hmm. most of us are the ones out here doing the work, getting up early in the morning, uh, taking the flack from the overlords of American industry, uh, you know, rich white people don't love poor white people much more than 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 black or brown poor people who could identify with them. So, you know, Du Bois in 1935 talked about the the psychological wages of whiteness, that the trick that the overlords, the rich fat cats did was that they told white people, at least you're not black. So they gave them a psychological wage of whiteness. Hey, you're white, so be proud of that. And that's why you see working class white people holding on to this kind of nascent nationalism, this resurgent racism and xenophobia thinking, well, we're being displaced. They will not displace us, speaking of Jews and black people and the like. If in reality they understood, no, you've got much more in common with poor black and brown people. Martin Luther King Jr. was in jail in 1963 in Birmingham. And they came to him and his jailer and the uh, and the warden said, you know, Dr. King, you're wrong. Segregation is right. Integration is wrong. He says, no, it's not. Then finally, he asked his jailer, how much money are you making? And when that jailer told him, he said, 
Hell, you need to be out here marching with us. <laughs> you got more in common with us. Bro, right. what you doing? Come on and join this movement. And at the end of his life, King was working toward a broad coalition of poor white people, poor black people, poor brown people, poor minoritized people to come together. That's our greatest strength in this nation. It's interesting that you bring that up because when people listen to Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, it's easy to surmise, uh, well, he must be a leftist. He feels this way. It's not necessarily to the right. It's not GOP. When I talk to you, I don't view you that way. I view you as a humanitarian, somebody that cares about the human race and making sure that we all prosper, not one prosper at the expense of another. You're just willing to uplift the most desolate and disenfranchised amongst us. There's a difference. That's not about being pro-Black. That's about being pro-human. That's about being a humanitarian in my estimation. And so I ask you this question right now, when you think about that, how would you classify yourself in this day and age? In this day, in the year 2022, based on, because we see extremes to the left that I'm sure you don't necessarily vibe with and extremes to the right that you definitely don't vibe with. I pride myself in being a centrist, but not nearly as knowledgeable as you about the political stratosphere or the political apparatus of things. I wonder how would you classify yourself right now to an audience listening to you? That's a, that's such a great point. Here's the thing. I'm trying to get into the left, but they keep rejecting me. (laughs) No, look, look, I came up as a progressive, as a left liberal and so on. But but thank you for saying what you said. But it's not doctrinaire. You got to be introspective. You got to be self-critical. You can't look. Let me give an example. So when it came to police violence, which is horrible and horrendous, and I've written books about it. And I stand with Black Lives Matter. I stand with those who stand against white supremacy and against anti-Blackness. But this is what I also said. When it comes to slogans, if you know your, quote, opponent or you think your enemy is going to be riled up and triggered by saying, you know, we're going to defund the police, you can have the same idea. Have strategy about what language you might want to use to not necessarily going in the door to alienate potential allies. That's not selling out. That's understanding what situation you're in. And this is what I often say. Do you want the commercial or do you want the product? I want the product. You ain't got to t- announce about what the it is. And I'm this and I'm a left I just talked. To, I, just talked to, I just talked to Master P a couple of weeks ago. He's about right. the product. He spoke about that. That, that. That's what it is. So we don't have to give all these commercials and stuff. Oh, we're going to give you. No, just do the thing. Don't announce to everybody what you're doing. Just do it. And for me, I think that, and thank you for saying that, because I think the project of progressives that I've been involved with has always been about humanitarianism. Martin Luther King Jr., that's the that's the tree I come from. And that's about giving serious attention to the most vulnerable populations and finding ways to bring them together. Look, I teach at the well-known black school Vanderbilt. Before that, I taught at the well-known <laughs> black school Georgetown. Before that, I taught at the well-known black school. They uh, ain't HBCUs. Come on, bro. <laughs> I teach white folks. You know, it kills me when people come to me. Well, you know white people. I teach white people, bro. That's what I do. I have their kids and they love me. Sorry, they do. So we have a great time and I have a rule. You come into my classroom as a white kid, you're not going to be shamed. You're not going to be dissed. Now, I can't protect you from your fellow classmates who are going to think your arguments are weak and so on. You got to fight for yourself. All of us do. But you will not coming into the classroom if you raise a question. Oh my God, are you crazy? No, yeah. none of that. We ha- I I am an opponent of cancel culture. I find it abhorrent. You know, people make mistakes. Whether it's a white person doing something, you're gonna cancel them like one time. They're done, like over. Or some guy who said something at 13. Now he's a ball player yes. getting drafted yes. at 21. Or comedians that said something 20, 25 years Come ago, on, bro. and suddenly they don't have a career now because it's of what nuts. they did in 1998. Come on, and let me jump into the. I know this is you know a little controversial, but you are Stephen A. Smith. What am I talking yes. about? Ime <laughs> Adoka is being yes. considered for coach at the Nets. And I just saw on your station arguments about, you know, some of the women saying, you know, is there accountability? And I was proud of Richard Jefferson and and Perk and said, I think being suspended for a year is pretty friggin' accountable. I think losing your money is accountable. Look, 
I believe that we should own up to our deficits, our deficiencies, our faults and failures. And yes, people should be held to account, but they should also be given second chances. This rush to dispose of human beings and to get rid of them. And I'll give you even a better example. Pharrell, our good friend Pharrell, called me up because he's from Virginia. He says, Mm -hmm. Doc, these black politicians want to talk to you because the governor is wearing a war white face over here, blackface, I'm sorry, and they want to know, should they go against him? I met with them. I said, hell no. They said, wow, Doc, we expect you to do something different. I said, let me tell you what, nothing better than a white guy who's conscious of the fact he's been forgiven of a particular, quote, flaw or sin. He might turn out to be Abraham Lincoln. What did that white governor do, Governor Northam? He freed 10,000 people. Well, he didn't free them. He restored their voting rights act, a disproportionate number of whom the former prisoners were black. He he took down the statue of Robert E. Lee. He dealt with the health care bills and needs of black women. He was incredible because he felt that he had received a gift of a second chance. This is what I come from. I'm an ordained Baptist minister. I believe in second chances. I believe in people messing up then fessing up and dressing up and doing the right thing. So no, I'm not one of these, let's cut them out, let's destroy them, let's let's kill my enemies. No, let's convert them, let's talk to them, let's engage them. Even if we ultimately disagree, let's treat each other like human beings. You're absolutely right. And one of the things that I've lamented on a consistent basis, I, you know, when it comes to my career, you and I have talked about this as well, you know, people don't realize I'm on live five days a week, minimum two hours a day, minimum, yes, okay? Yes. Um, there ain't even a seven second delay. Right. right and right. a word or a sentence that I utter can get me fired. That's yeah. the minefield that I Ooh. walk in every day, having to tackle one issue after another. I'm speaking up for one brother, but if it's against the next brother, then I'm dogging brothers, even though right. uh, even though I called out this brother for the wrong that he did to right. help and protect 20 other brothers. I mean, That's it's just right. one thing after another after another. It's just challenges that you walk into. But to get back to your point in terms of just the whole mentality that you have, particularly when it comes to strategizing, phrases that you use, things of that nature. I've got an interesting thing to throw about, throw at you. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I said, and I could be wrong, and if anybody can, 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 can correct me, it's my brother, Dr. Dyson, right here. Black Lives Matter too. What would have been wrong with that as opposed to Black Lives Matter? Right. Well, that's well, first of all, that is the implication. Thank you for saying that, actually. You know, we could have tacked on that other word, that too, right? We could have said that this prepositional phrase or whatever, you know, would have been clarifying. Although you and I both know that it still would have been some white lives matter people going, nope, 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 blue lives and black. But it is implied and it could have been helpful linguistically and politically to say Black Lives Matter also. Black Lives Matter too, because that's the implication. And when our dear brother uh, Kanye West wore the White Lives Matter t-shirt, you're being redundant. We know white lives matter. But as you said, Black Lives Matter too. uh, You know, Asian Lives Matter too. Gay Lives Matter too. The point is not to deny the legitimacy of white lives mattering. It's to say that all of our lives should matter to the same degree, with the same emphasis, and to the same magnitude. Mm. Let me move on to another subject real quick. You brought him up earlier. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Right. Look, I don't agree with the man, but he is a Supreme Court Justice, and I'm not about to engage in condemnation. I will tell you, I was tempted. (laughs) Uh, And I've been tempted on numerous occasions. I believe in a woman's right to choose. I'm not for abortion, but I am vehemently against a man telling a woman what she can or should do with her body. I'm just right. not of that cloth. I believe that Absolutely. that's her business and that's you know, hard to deal with with her God. But when Clarence Thomas came out and said, diversity, what is that? I don't know what diversity. Be- I mean, of all the things that he has said or has done <laughs> since he has been on the, in the, in the Supreme Court what is since 1991, I, I could not believe that, that 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 this man right. that said, hey, you know what diversity is. What yeah. were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I'm with you. And I'm I'm a bit more willing, a tad more liable, liable 
to to criticize uh, uh, you know Supreme Court Justice Thomas no. because of the point you're making now. It's the contradiction. Right after Roe versus Wade, he said, "Well, we need to look at some other stuff like the, yes. the laws of interracial marriage and so on." Yes, bro, that would delegitimate your own marriage, sir. Now, yes. you know, we could we could be brothers in comedy and go like, well, maybe that's what he was trying to do, delegitimate it uh, so he could get out. Oh my but goodness. we, we, can, we right. can laugh at that and go like, oh, that was a brother move right there. I get you, son. But no, here's the point. Diversity, Mr. Thomas, you know, you were on a council that dealt with, you know, the possibility of diversity uh, in our culture, especially in our government, before you became a Supreme Court justice. You know what diversity is. It was a rhetorical gesture to try to distance himself uh, from the offices of diversity that made him possible. Again, affirmative action is, is no shame on black or brown people or, or women. It's, it's a shame on the institutions that stop you from performing in the first place. You know, there's no shame on Jackie Robinson because baseball kept out black people until he played. There's no shame on Earl Lloyd, who was kept out of base, basketball uh, until he was allowed to play. So the point is that affirmative action doesn't mean we are inferior. It means that we finally get our shot and our chance and we should have that opportunity. You know, I was on a plane once. And two white women who had recognized me from TV, Dr. Dyson, how you doing? We're a big fan of yours. Thank you so much. And then over the intercom, it was clear that the pilot was a woman. And then they said, well, Dr. Dyson, what do you think about that? They were too cute. And I said, what do you mean? (laughs) I was like, like, I didn't know. I said, what do you mean? And they did like this. You know, (laughs) I said, oh, heck, I'm going to sleep tonight right now. They said, oh, my God, why? I said, because if it's a woman flying this plane, they have tested this woman out so many times, she could probably land this plane upside down on a dime and give you some change. They said, oh, right. we haven't thought about it that way. I said, yes, we have to be over-prepared, over-capable. Look, Stephen A. Smith, to me, is the GOAT. No more, no one more powerful or gifted as a sports journalist than you, especially a black sports journalist, but I mean sports journalist, period. But I tell you what, as a black man, you still got to overperform and over-index the levels of intelligence that you display to be able to make points that even your colleagues do in your own given profession. That's what it means to be a person of color or a minority in this country, to overperform just to get this shot that other people take for granted. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Getting back to the whole admissions thing at these universities with affirmative action, I think the thing that people are missing about affirmative action, and I think it's important to bring this up, is that they talk about admissions, but what they're not realizing, those who make an argument against affirmative action, against it, right. What they're essentially asking you to do is to go back to trusting us that we'll, we'll judge you on merit. That's That's what they're missing. They're asking for the eradication, all right, of the mistrust and the distrust we have in a system that has proven you can't be trusted when we allow you to be, you know, left to your own devices. Can't be more brilliantly stated. Flavor Flav said, can't trust it. We can't trust it. And the thing is, we can't trust it because we don't want to leave it up to your devices, your will, your volition, your consciousness, your motivation. No, because you have proved time and again that that will not motivate you. And another thing that they're missing, schools always take into account diversity, just not diversity of race. Uh, Let me see. We've got 12 people here already from the South. We need somebody from the Northeast. That's right. Let's get somebody in. We got eight women. We might need two more guys. Come on. All the time. We've got got these people from affluent backgrounds. We need a couple of poor folks here to add to the equation. Yes. Come on. We got violin players over here. Uh, We've got 12 trumpet players. Let's get a couple of violas. Come on, let's get a sack. We need a sack. We always argue for diversity or people who are the recipients of the nod because their parents went somewhere. You know, Mm. oh, my parent is a graduate here. Okay, give them an extra few points there. That adds up. So we do everything except race. Race is a function of merit or can function as merit in a system where race has been a demerit. This is what the historically amnesiacs are forgetting. 
race was constituted as an act of demerit. So for a while, it has to constitute a merit. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963, in his book, Why We Can't Wait, said that a nation that has done something special against the Negro for 250 years, as we were then called, must now do something special for the Negro in regard to education and employment. That's what a lot of people who quote Martin Luther King Jr. about his so-called colorblindness are missing when he makes an argument in behalf of what we would now know as affirmative action. Let's switch it and go from, you know, what we're talking about is being done to a lot of members of the desolate and the disenfranchised to what we do to ourselves. It's right. one of the convers- one of the other conversations that we've had on many occasions. And you and I, right. I you and I have not only had it with one another, we've had it with groups of other people as well. That's right. Talking That's right. about the things that we can do better. There's black yeah. on black crime. We can't escape it. There's also white on white crime, Latino on Latino crime. Right, we get right, all right. of that. But the fact of the matter is their numbers don't equate to an endangered species. Ours do. Because mm-hmm. our numbers are the ones that are in danger of dissipating. So when we do what we do to each other, it has far more of a profound effect on our community than it does on other communities who are sure. obvious, who have obviously proliferated, at least to some degree, with the Latino community. Obviously not the white community because their population in this country has shrunk. My right. question to you is, when we think about the progressives, the extreme left, and some of the things that they have been pushing, I would make the argument that in some ways they've galvanized the right to the point where I've had numerous Republicans come up to me. We ain't protesting. We ain't marching. We ain't arguing. We ain't doing all of that. We're just going to go to the polls and vote. Mm -hmm. And then you see somebody like Barack Obama out there preaching about, pushing about, y'all got to go vote. Where do you lie in all of that, Dr. Dyson, right now in the climate that exists in 2022? Got to vote. Got to get out there. Look, we know the shenanigans, as uh, President Biden would say. We know the trickery. We know the stratagems that is unjust and unfair. We know that the attempt to deny black and brown peoples the right to vote is a persistent theme in American politics. Look at all these Republican-controlled state legislators that are gerrymandering and redrawing maps to favor, you know, Republicans who are against, you know, voter ID. I mean, who are for voter ID. Look, you can own a gun and have an ID, you can vote, but you can be a college student and can't. So we know that's there. Having said that, the margin of victory for those who are out here on our side could be secured if those of us who can do vote. There's no excuse. I hear young people, ah, it ain't going to make no difference. You can't get everything you want all the time. Stop being spoiled. Uh, You know, we vote sometimes. Look at the right wing that you're mad at. They laid in wait for 50 years for Roe versus Wade until the moment came when they kept voting, got the person in office that they wanted, and then that person was able to appoint judges who then changed the law. You got to have a long game. You got to have a long strategy. And so many of us on the left, we don't do that, or we don't understand the necessity for voting. And I am for voting. I am for people going out there. I'm not for this cynicism. Ah, it doesn't make a difference. I remember when people, I, I was debating left-wingers who told me there was no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I was like, have you lost your mind? There's a huge gulf. There's a huge difference. And it will have a significant impact upon the jurists that are chosen, upon the Supreme Court justices that are put in office. When we vote down ballot or up ballot, it's we vote locally. Look at the prosecutors. You say you're tired of prosecutors not holding police to account. State attorney generals. And attorney attorney generals. I mean, look, we, we have got to change that. And let me address more specifically what you're talking about, because you know I'm a fan of hip hop. We've written several books on hip hop, including on our dear brother, Genius. Jay-Z, but I'm tired of the black death. I am tired of young black kids dying who are hip-hop artists. Now, look, I know back in your day and my day, we we settled it by fistfights. It's not that they're different um, emotionally. The difference is the flooding of these neighborhoods with guns and the easy resort to violence to resolve disputes. So it's both our problem and our issue and the flooding of our neighborhoods with these guns. But I am tired. Rest in peace, brother Takeoff, who recently lost his life in a dice game in Houston, Texas. In a bowling alley. This is lunacy. This is lunacy. 
And we have got to man up and woman up and address this in our own community. And I tell you, but it makes it hard. And here's what makes it hard. We'll talk about black, black on black crime and we will go ballistic if a law enforcement official mm-hmm. kills an unarmed black person. That's sure. why we should. That's why we should. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm a person that has said to police officers, I said, listen, I don't say police brutality. I say brutality on the part of some police officers. I make sure to make that distinction in my estimation because I want police officers to know I don't look at all of you and think of all of you that way. I'm not that guy. But I need you as a police officer to understand when we see footage of some dude in Oklahoma City literally shooting at the police and he gets arrested. When we see uh, or hear of an Uber driver in Michigan has killed seven people and he's gotten arrested. When we see some little kid go inside a church in South Carolina and murder nine people in a church and somehow, someway, not only is he arrested, but y'all stop at Burger King to get him some food. But an unarmed black man ends up being murdered. That is that is justification for a damn uproar. Okay. Yes, having it is. said all of that, right, right. Having said all of that, it is challenging. It is challenging, Dr. Dyson, when folks come at us and they say to black people, so y'all got a problem with this black unarmed guy that was murdered right. by a police officer, and that causes a protest. Mm. But 30, 50, 100 right. of your own are killed by your own right. inside of a month. Right. And y'all say Look. very little. What Look. do you say to people? What, what, what are we to say to folks right. when they make that argument against us? Right. No, it's a great point. Number one, many more of us that are given credit for protest what we call black on black death. The truth is, truth is, it's horizontal death. It's uh It's death in neighborhoods. It's neighbor-to-neighbor carnage. Because we know that 84% of white people who are murdered are murdered by white people. We know that 93% of black people who are murdered are murdered by black people. So we know people kill where they live. You know, uh, people don't take buses and trains to go out to the suburbs. Let me kill somebody. You know, it happens emotionally in reaction to a lot of times people you know already in your neighborhood. So let's clarify that, number one. Number two, you're absolutely right in terms of the fact that uh, those black people should be concerned, and many of them are. I have personally led marches in neighborhoods against what we would call neighbor-to-neighbor carnage and black people killing black people. A lot of black people I preach in churches, they talk about it constantly and relentlessly in local organizations, but they don't make the news because it's not sexy enough to make the news. That's number two. Mm-hmm. Number three, I'm with you. It's both, not either or, but the, here's the difference. Jerome or Juju who kills somebody, if they catch that brother, he going to jail, most likely. Right. If they catch him, he, he ain't, no, ain't no argument, ain't no, ain't no conversation. You going to jail and you going to spend a bunch of time there. Right. Whereas qualified immunity gives many police people the ability to commit mayhem and not be held to account. And then next, the police person has the imprimatur and the blessing of the state. The average black person, average white person, average citizen doesn't. You are killing in the name of the state. You are harassing in the name of the state. You have a higher obligation. You have a greater responsibility to restrain yourself so that you can see comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, and peace prevail. So we expect you as officers of the law to be able to withhold your you know, energetic, emotional response and then address the situation at hand. But look, ain't nobody going to defend, as I've already done here, ain't nobody going to defend the level of violence done against Black people at the hands of other Black people. And the, and I'm tired of it. And it's exhausting. And, and you know, back in, you know, earlier days when Tupac got killed and Biggie got killed, that was like, oh, my God, that was How epic. did this happen? Yeah. yeah. How? How? My now God. it's normal. Now you damn near yawn at it because you expect it. Come on. Every other week, you're at the Roscoe's and somebody is stabbing. And you can say to the brother, could you just take his chain? You have to shoot him in the back of his head, please. So, yeah, we got a lot of work to do among ourselves, as well as the issues of poverty and social injustice and lack of criminal justice that prevails in our communities. Call this rudimentary. Call it just, you know, uh, just basic 
Um, I'm a capitalist and I'm not ashamed of it um, mm-hmm. from the standpoint that I believe that when you have more, you care about more things. Mm-hmm. When you have less, you have little, you almost have nothing to lose. Right. And so for me, when I think about things, I think about the economy. I think about how prosperous people are being. Because mm-hmm. once you see a better life in some capacity, you'll value things more. You want to hold on to it more. That's just how I think, Doc. You know mm-hmm. that. And yeah. I ask, I bring that up in asking this question. Because what we just finished talking about and what we just finished articulating elevates the importance of voting. Mm-hmm. It's a necessity. Guess what? You get when you vote, not just nationally, but locally, you get to have an impact. And all of a sudden, again, those law enforcement officials, state attorney generals, mayoral positions, city council folks, all of that stuff, you impact that. But to me, aside from that, it does come down to money in this sense. Business, especially in this country, has to prosper because if that's not happening, All hell is going to break loose. Mm. And I think that's what we're seeing right now because of the violence in the streets, because of the impending recession, because of inflation, because of all of these things going on. You've Mm. got folks worried about their quality of life. I think that's what these midterm elections are about. And I think that's why the GOP is looking in a good position right now. What say you? No, it's, it's, it's a great point. That sense of economic anxiety that sense of social insecurity that leads poor white and working class white people for the most part uh, to react to the situation at hand. But don't forget that led to the election of a president who on both sides of the aisle was seen as, you know, hurtful to traditions of democracy. This is not about left versus right. This is about what you're doing to maintain the integrity of the Constitution, the yeah. Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights. So yeah. it ain't about left versus right. It's about right versus wrong. Right. Number two, Martin Luther King Jr. at the end of his life was critical of the accumulation of wealth under capitalism because it didn't pay attention to the needs of the most vulnerable who had contributed enormous sums of money or through sweat equity and labor, as well as paying their taxes into this economy. So he wanted to remind us, as figures in our own day and age, Cherise Stelly Burden, uh, Burden Stelly, uh, uh, Robin D.G. Kelly, some great scholars who have been thinking about it, or Angela Davis, for that matter, on the other side, or Kianga Yamada-Taylor. These are scholars who have been thinking critically about culture and race and, and politics and the economy in a beautiful way. But what you're saying is so powerful in the sense that um, the the sense of economic anxiety has driven the social distress of so many white brothers and sisters, again, to vote against their own interests. Voting for fat cats in Congress is not going to serve you. Voting for a president that you think is your friend who put none of the working class and poor people in his cabinet and assigned none of them significant um, roles in his administration means that it's very tough on either side for poor people to be taken seriously. So yes, the entrepreneurs, local entrepreneurs don't want to be hurt. Wait a minute, are these regulations going to discourage me from going into business? Are they going to disproportionately tax me and punish me? And I'm trying to provide people jobs. Can I catch a break? So across the board, the economy is real. And you're so right. Uh, usually the, the the party out of power is the one that gains in the midterm elections. So already we're bracing, depending on where you stand, uh, for a takeover in the House and potentially in the Senate, depending upon how things work out uh, in Georgia and in Vegas as to whether or not uh, the 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 party that's in power now will maintain uh, its hold, or at least this 50-50 split that will be decided by the vice president. But you're right, economic insecurity, social, social uh, insecurity, and the way in which the politics of fear and panic make up for uh, our ability to secure our futures for our children. When you put that together, it's a horrible cocktail. People vote against their interests. And I think there's going to be a profound shift in politics after uh, this November election. Mm. Before I let you get on out of here, just a couple of more questions, Doc. Listen to the progressives on the left. Listen right. to the MAGA Republicans on the right. right. This midterm election is so important. 
I mean, the world that we know will come to an end if we lose this election. That's what both Mm -hmm. sound like. Do you agree with any of them? No, I mean, the thing, the beautiful thing about being in our position historically, you as a black man in America, me as a black man in America, we know that even when they proclaim this is the last, this is the end, this is the worst, it ain't the last, it ain't the end, it ain't the worst, right? This is not the worst we have seen in America. You know, I'm reminded of that Saturday Night Live uh, skit right after the election of 45 to office. Right. And Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock were hosting the show. Mm -hmm. And the white folk on there were going, oh my God, it's the worst ever. This is ridiculous. I've never seen this. And they looked at each other like, huh? I guess they never heard of slavery. (laughs) I guess they never heard of Jim Crow. So, So the point is, is that as bad as it is, it ain't nearly as bad as it has been. The great theologian and philosopher and minister Howard Thurman said, a black man, never reduce your vision or your dreams to the event that immediately confronts you, whether it's political despair, whether it's social distress, whether it's economic anxiety. Never reduce your dreams and hopes to the event you are confronting because history teaches you that you can look forward to a different future. You can imagine a different future. And as bad as it is now, it's been worse than now. And we draw hope from the fact that we have made it through darker times. And if we've made it through darker times, we can make it through this dark time as well. I love you, my brother. You're the best. Um, Before I let you get on out of here, I mean, what what book you got on shelves now? I mean, what you got going on right now? Just tell it. It's always something with you. You just continue to put all of us to shame. I wrote, I've just finished my memoir. I promise you, I ain't writing another book. I don't know how you did it. I can't take this stuff. I don't want any parts of it anymore. Look, I've just seen parts of that. You about to drop a classic, bro. You know, if you drop, you know, uh, what's Jay's first album? If you drop Can't Knock the Hustle or Nas's first album, if you drop Illmatic, you ain't got to drop that down. You just drop a, you drop a classic. So, so look, I got to make up and keep dropping albums till I get the classic. But, you know, I'm working on a book that addresses the very thing you're talking about now, where we are as a nation and what we can do to get beyond this impasse because we have to love the hell and the hate out of each other. And let me say this. I love Kanye West. He's a friend of mine. I love Kyrie Irving. I don't know him, but I love both of them. But brothers, please understand, you do not gain by demonizing or stigmatizing another ethnic group that has been equally subject to forces of domination and depression. Yes, there are legitimate differences between Blacks and Jews. There are conflicts that should be spoken about, but not in terms of hate or denial of humanity, or the kind of over, you know, um, exaggeration of their power and the like. Insensitivity to what they endured. Their struggles, six million Jews were slaughtered. Genocide was exacted against them. How can you not recognize that? Come on. That's why you can't go, I'm going to go DEFCON 3 on on Jews. You know, you can't do that because you got to understand what they've come out of and what they've come up against. So at the end of the day, let's pool our resources. Let's forge connections. Let's build bridges as opposed to erecting walls. Love you, my brother. I appreciate you, man. You take care of yourself. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you, sir. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Ah, uh, it's always a beautiful pleasure to talk to my brother, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. Folks at Vanderbilt don't know how lucky they are to have that brilliant man. Make no mistake about it. And I have to admit that the part that I loved about our discussion most was when we were actually talking about affirmative action from this one perspective. And I brought it up. Ultimately, when we're talking about affirmative action and the eradication of affirmative actions at schools like Harvard, University of North Carolina, along with various other places, while there are those who may believe they're making a profound argument, remember something. At the end of the day, eradicating all of these I don't want to say perks, 
advantages that people would say the African-American community may have, I would remind you the reason why its implementation was necessary in the first place is because the system wasn't being fair and equitable. And federal intervention was required to ensure fairness would be the order of the day. To eradicate it now is to ask people in this day and time to go back to trusting the system. What has the system done to be trusted? What has the system done in a multitude of categories for any of us to be able to say laws of the land shouldn't compel anybody to engage in fairness? We can handle it on our own. We'll be fair. We don't have to be forced to be fair. Just think about that. And go watch the rest of this election. See how things unfold. Watch how people act. Listen to the things that get said. Monitor the insensitivity. And then come back and talk to me. I'm out, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you soon. No mercy with Stephen A. Smith. Always gratified and appreciative of you tuning in. And as I say when I close every show, remember, you don't have to know sports to no mercy. Peace and love, everybody. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcast. Guess who's got a memoir coming out, ladies and gentlemen? Yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. It's entitled Straight Shooter, and it's available right now for pre-order. I have signed these books, just so you know. So you can visit straightshooterbook.com to order your autographed copy today. In the book, I talk about my life before ESPN, growing up in Hollis, Queens, New York, how sports proved to be my salvation. I talk about some of the mistakes I've made in my life and my impact on the world of sports. The book is called Straight Shooter, and it's written to help motivate you to overcome setbacks that maybe prevent you from reaching your dreams. So go right now and order your autographed copy of my memoir, straightshooterbook.com. Don't wait. It's entitled Straight Shooter. Check it out. Don't miss it.